ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. All right, today I would like to talk about Chapter 3 of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. The title of this chapter is A Word About Words. It's a very short chapter. It was only about 15 pages long. Um, It was very interesting, though. Basically, the thrust of this chapter is that he is talking about how we have taken words that don't necessarily have a derogatory meaning, and we have twisted them through popular culture or just people intentionally trying to make something that not necessarily a bad thing and turn it into something that nobody should be involved with. But this is something that we see a lot in our modern culture, which is really why I found this chapter so interesting. I think it's very germane to what's going on in this country right now. He gave several examples. Again, this was a very short chapter, but so far from the book that I've read, this is the one that is most pertinent to things that are happening right now in both the news and politics. And politics is one of the words that he actually discusses in the chapter. Politics has a very bad meaning to us as a nation at this time. You know, you always hear people saying, you know, he's just playing politics or, or of course, politician is almost a curse word at this point, uh, which I think even Saul Alinsky would agree with me when I say that has become a derogatory term 100% because the politicians have earned that becoming a derogatory term. If you call somebody a politician, you're you're basically calling them a backstabbing, two-faced slime ball, and that's because most of our politicians and 100% of the politicians in Washington are two-faced, backstabbing slime balls. But that wasn't always the case. As a matter of fact, if you look up in the Merriam-Webster dictionary the definition of politics, it is very simply the science and art of government. And there was a time in this country where the art of politics was something held in a great deal of esteem. If you go back to the Founders' times, the people going into Congress, I'm sure some of them had duplicitous motivations, but for the most part, politicians held themselves to an extremely high standard. You were supposed to be a gentleman and an intellectual before you even thought about going into into that particular career path. Of course, back then it wasn't a career path. These gentlemen would enter into Congress, they would serve a term, maybe two terms, and then they would go back and tend to their farm or their business, whatever it is that they were doing before they went into Congress. But while they were there, these individuals took a great deal of pride in comporting themselves with a great deal of dignity, a great deal of integrity, honesty, you know, all the things we think of when we think of a congressman today, obviously. But there was a time in this country where the word politics just simply described the day-to-day machinations of how our government functioned and how things got done. Over the years, obviously, we've gotten to where we are now, where if you talk about politics, it's somebody that's trying to manipulate the system to, to reach their own goals, and they're just pretending like they care about the system that they're working within, and they don't really don't care at all about what they're supposed to be doing. They're just trying to take care of their their own financials or their own career. And again, while that word has gotten twisted, I don't think that that one was done intentionally to try to put a bad face on a politician. The politicians themselves have very willingly stepped into that role. The word did not get twisted by us. It got twisted by them. But another word that he wanted to discuss in the chapter was self-interest. Now, of course, anytime you hear anybody described as, you know, operating in their own self-interest, that is just a 
catchphrase for saying that person is selfish and they're screwing everybody around them over and they don't care. They're just worried about themselves. There are instances where that is exactly what's going on. Somebody is only concerned about themselves and they don't care who gets hurt or screwed over along the way. In those instances, that description fits. Most of the time, everything you do serves your self-interest in one way or another. We are an individual animal, and at the core of our psychology, the very deepest, darkest, most primitive part of our brain has one motivation, and that is to survive. Everything else that we do can be traced in some form or another back to that very core psychological principle. It drives every single thing we do. It is why we strive to get a roof over our heads, to have food in the house. It is why we strive to take care of our children to so that our genes will survive into the next generation. It is the driving factor for everything you do. I do not enjoy paying bills. I, I do not want to send money to the gas company, to the electric company, to make the car payments. But I do need a vehicle. I do need a warm home. I would like to have lights at night and food in the fridge. So even though I don't want to write all those checks out every month and send them to these companies, I need the things that I'm paying for. I'm doing something that I don't want to do because it serves my self-interest. And even if you look at what would we consider just the most altruistic person you know, and you're somebody that you know, spends their weekends framing houses for Habitat for Humanity and is at the soup kitchen every Thanksgiving serving meals or, you know, out cleaning up garbage off the side of the road. Yes, they are giving to their community. Yes, they are doing things to help others. But they are getting something back in return. They feel a sense of accomplishment. They feel a sense of happiness from doing these things. It is extremely rare for a human being to do something that is 100% divorced from self-interest. Those situations do come up, but it is not the driving factor of human psychology. It's such a strong motivation, in fact, that nearly every time you see someone that's doing something that they're claiming is supposed to better their self-interest and it's really just not going to, it's because that person is mistaken. You know, they're not doing it because they think, well, this isn't going to work out for me. They're doing something that they believe will work out for them, but most people can look at the situation and see that, no, that's not going to work out. An example that you'll see over and over again is someone that runs a business, and while he's not mean to his employees, he wants to pay below the industry standard. The issue with that is if you're working a profession where you can expect to make $50,000 a year, you're not going to stay at a job that only pays you $35,000 a year for very long. You're going to build up a little bit of experience. You're going to find someplace else where you're getting paid what you would expect to get paid. The problem for the individual that is running a business like that, they think they're saving on payroll. They think they're coming out a little, little better at the end of the month. What happens is good employees will not stay at a place where they're not getting paid what they should. Good employees have options, and they will take them. The business that wants to pay less is going to wind up with people that, for whatever reason, they can't keep a good job or get a good job making what they're supposed to. So after a couple of years of really lowballing people on their payroll, what you're going to be left with are people that can't get a job anywhere else. And you cannot run a good business with bad employees. In the long run, he's 
you know, it's like the old saying, cutting your nose off to spite your face. He's hurting himself. He thinks that he's doing something good because he's got a little better figure at the end of the month on the bottom line of that spreadsheet. But in the long run, he's hurting himself. But he's not doing it because he thinks he's hurting himself. He's doing it because he thinks he's saving money. The opposite of this is also true. If you have someone running a business where they pay their employees very well, and I don't mean way overpaying them for what their position would call for, but just gives them a good salary and makes them feel welcomed and appreciated. People that are happy and feel that their job is appreciated, they're going to do better work. And yes, that business owner will have a higher payroll expense each month, but in the long run, that business in almost every situation will outperform other businesses because he is going to have good people doing good work and it just works out better. You know, he's taking care of people, and that's a good thing, but he's doing it for his self-interest, but everybody benefits. Self-interest does not have to be a bad thing. It certainly can, but most of the time, it's not. We all serve our self-interest in one way or another. Another word that Saul Linsky discussed was conflict. We sort of have an, an image in our head of conflict. It always means physical combat. You're fighting. Basically, all conflict means is opposing forces. Um, you know, somebody has a conflict of interest. They, they have two interests involved in the situation that should be working opposite of each other. When there's breaking news on the TV, sometimes you'll have conflicting reports, which is, means one person said one thing, another person said something completely different. The reports are conflicting. Conflict also leads to change. And as far as political parties, um, I'm not a huge fan of the two-party system we have. Uh, I think we could be well-served if they were one or two other viable parties for people to invest their vote in. But in the political realm, conflict will keep a check on some really bad ideas and help you find the good ideas. Sort of the same concept of businesses, you know, competition. If there's good competition in a business, the consumers are going to win out because they're going to get a better product at a better price. And it's not because everybody is doing exactly the same thing. It's because the competitions are trying to find more efficient ways to do things, produce a better quality product. It works the same way in the political realm. Um, well, it, it's supposed to. We've gotten to the point where nobody wants to give up anything, and it's if they did not get their way, they lost on, on everything. If they did not get everything they wanted, somehow they feel cheated, and they won't go along with it at all. Compromise is actually another word that Saul Linsky wanted to bring to the table in this chapter. Compromise really has a lot of negative connotations to it. Uh, back in Victorian times, if a woman was not a virgin and she was not married, it was she was described as being compromised. If you're watching a war movie and there's a secret mission and it, it leaks out to the enemy, they say, all right, the mission's compromised. Compromised means damaged, basically, is a good definition of compromised. And in our overly stubborn, I'm absolutely certain my side is right, political arena that we find ourselves in now, when you say somebody's willing to compromise, he's basically damaged goods. And we don't want to have anything to do with that man or woman because she's going to give up concessions to the other side. Well, you can give up concessions on reasonable things and talk them off the ledge on the ridiculous things. Both sides of the aisle would do much better if they would remember that compromise is not a dirty word. You can compromise without just completely surrendering your position. That's the whole point of compromise. I'll give you a little, you give me a little. 
you, I've heard it said that you know you've hit the right balance in a deal when both sides feel like they could have got a little bit better deal for themselves. That's supposed to be the ideal situation in politics, but everybody in Washington now is such a spoiled little five-year-old narcissist that you feel like if, if I didn't get everything I wanted, I'm just going to take my ball and go home and nobody will get anything, which is a particularly stupid way to look at anything, but, but that's where we've arrived at. Which brings us to the final word that Saul Linsky wanted to discuss in this chapter, and that word was power. Now, we have become very distrustful of anybody with power. You know, power absolutely can be abused. I think we have all had a manager at a job we worked at that really did not need to have any power. They just don't have the personality to handle it. Even people that get like tiny little bits of power will go nutty a lot of times. Look how many horror stories you hear about the middle-aged divorcee that's running the HOA in your neighborhood. And she just, it's like she's Mussolini. You know, you have to grovel at her feet for the tiniest little thing or she'll make sure that you're not allowed to do that on your own property. Some people really do go insane with it. Uh, But unfortunately, if we're going to have a society, if we're going to have a system of government or just a structure to our lives at all, somebody has to have some power. You know, we have to have rules. We have to have structure. We have to have police. These cities that we're talking about defunding the police, I mean, we all know how that's going to go. I'm not against that idea, actually. You know, if somebody wants to defund the police in their city, and you know, some of these towns are talking about just not even just defunding it, I mean, completely disbanding it. My opinion on that is go for it. There is a 1% chance that these municipalities will stumble upon a more efficient way to handle law enforcement in their town. And if that happens, that's fantastic. We should all learn from their example and incorporate that into our own communities. There is a 99% chance, however, that crime is just going to spiral out of control in those communities. But that's not actually a loss for everybody. Uh, It would suck if you lived in that town. But for the rest of us, that would be a wonderful example of why you shouldn't do that. Because we can all point to that city and say, well, you you remember that town over there? You remember what those dumbasses did? That's why you don't do that. And, you know, the murders and rapes and robberies and break-ins and muggings, everything just skyrocketed because there were no police. And, of course, if there's no police, the criminals can just go out and do whatever they want. You know, we always hear, you know, America is the police force of the world. You know, we shouldn't do that. I heard a saying one time that, they said, you know, the only thing worse than having to be the police force for the entire planet would be living on a planet with no police force. You know, I've been alive for 46 years now, and I've heard a lot of crazy ideas. Uh, the push toward complete anarchy that is gaining some traction with younger people is among the more insane things I've heard. We have always understood that you know, while a limited government works best, there does have to be a government. Even Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers said, What is a power but the ability and faculty to do a thing? What is the ability of a thing but the power of employing the means necessary to its execution? Alexander Hamilton understood that some power needed to be in the hands of our leaders. And the word power is not an expletive. You know, it's not derogatory. The definition of power is just energy or the power to act or influence a thing or situation. Power does not mean control of an individual. It certainly can. 
Ask anyone in 1938 Germany. Ask anybody in 1950s Russia. You Ask anybody in China or Cuba now. It can mean that, but those are abuses by megalomaniacs that happen to be in charge. But the people that we elect to be our leaders have to have the power to act. Uh, Pascal said, Justice without power is impotent. Power without justice is tyranny. So unfortunately, for us to have a society, we have to give the power to pass laws and to do the things that needs to be done for the society to the people that we elect to lead that society. Again, it can be abused. Most societies keep their leaders in check to one extent or another, not always. You know, power is a tool. It's the same as one of the guns that I've got in the gun locker downstairs, you know. Uh, With that gun, I could go out and I could just randomly start shooting people. Um, I can go hunting and provide food for my family to eat. I can defend my family from home invaders. The gun itself is neither here nor there. It is how I use it that would either mean that it's either dangerous or beneficial. Power is the same way. And we've always heard power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, Saul Alinsky says in this chapter that we have so perverted the meaning of the word power that we can't even remember that quote correctly, because what Acton actually said was that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Little different meaning than what we've always heard. Now, Saul Alinsky obviously understood the ability for people to change the meaning of words to affect how people feel about a certain situation. But I don't think that he could have predicted how weaponized that has become over the last 10 or 15 years. And maybe the internet has sped that up. Maybe it was always like that, but you didn't really hear a lot of it. But there is a saying that if you control the language, you control the argument. And that is, I hate to give it the props and say that it's been refined to an art form in the age of the internet and Twitter and Facebook. But how often have you seen a word that has been used to describe a thing or a situation for your entire life? Suddenly they've just hung a new moniker on it. And it's not just that they've changed the word. That's actually, I have heard linguists say that that's something that most generations do Uh, They will change the language slightly with each new generation. It's just sort of how languages evolve. Uh, This is a little bit different. Number one, it was divisive my entire life. Well, five minutes ago, somebody decided to say divisive. And it's not just that, well, you pronounce it this way, I pronounce it that way. No, you'll see interviews where somebody will say, well, this is a very divisive issue. And the person that they're discussing with, debating with, will stop them and say, divisive. And then they'll say, well, yeah, divisive. No, 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 it's divisive. That person is not worried about the pronunciation of that word. They're trying to take control of the discussion. They're stopping you, derailing your train of thought to try to force you to say this word that was correct for 99.9% of their life into something that you have simply suddenly decided needs to be said differently. And it is simply a a cheap way for somebody to gain the upper hand in an argument because we're not discussing the topic anymore. You're not making your statement anymore. Uh, I have stopped us completely, and we're going to talk about the way I want you to say a word. It completely shuts down any intellectual discussion. Like I say, it's a cheap tactic, and generally when I see people doing that, 
It is because they have run out of valid arguments for that discussion, and they're just trying to pull the discussion off into the weeds so they can have this argument about the minutia of where the accent in a word should go. But sometimes it's a little more malicious than that. Something that I'm seeing more and more often now is they will change the name of something and they will announce that the old word for that was racist or sexist or homophobic or problematic. Now, that word was not meant to be derogatory. That was simply what the name of that thing was. You have arbitrarily decided that only horrible, horrible white supremacist Nazi monsters would use that word. Well, you've just made that word up, changed the definition of what should be used to describe that, And anytime anyone uses the quote-unquote old terminology, you're just immediately going to say, you know, you've outed yourself as a racist. I don't want to discuss this with you. You know, you shouldn't have an opinion. It's basically just a way of saying, I don't want to have a discussion, so I'm going to find a reason to call you a horrible person, and then I will feel morally justified in not debating you. And they'll walk away from that situation thinking that they came out on top. And again, whenever I see that happen, the only thing that's running through my head is you can't defend your belief, so you're going to attack the person instead of their ideas. And most of the words really, it's not a change. It's just slightly different so the people, again, can control the conversation. It's just like illegal aliens. You cannot say illegal aliens anymore or you're racist. What they want you to say now is undocumented worker. Well, now, you know, a hundred years ago when there was the immigration boom coming to this country for the Industrial Revolution, now, through the years, it has got, this term has gotten to where it sort of specifically refers to Italians, but the term WAP does not refer to any nationality or race of people. It simply means without papers. Now, a 20-year-old leftist would just be absolutely offended if you called somebody a WAP, which is just saying without papers. Well, how is WAP different from undocumented workers? It's the exact same thing. You have decided one is horrible and I don't have to debate you and I'm morally superior to you and you should go and crawl away into a hole somewhere and die because the world doesn't need you. And the other is the exact same thing, just spelled differently. Again, this stuff feels like it's 10 minutes old. I swear I think it's just because the internet has given everybody a voice that they can tell everybody on the planet whatever crackpot theory they've got in their head at any given moment. And plus, it's instantaneous. You don't have to, you know, write a letter and you've got to think it out and maybe some common sense will kick in and you'll just decide, you know, I need to keep my mouth shut on this. But this is not new. I've got a quote that I'd like to read you. It's from Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a psychologist in the late 1800s. And this is what Friedrich Nietzsche had to say about changing the language to appease people. Why stroke the hypersensitive ears of our modern weaklings? Why yield even a single step to the tartuffery of words? For a psychologist, that would involve a tartuffery of action. For a psychologist today shows his good taste, some may say his integrity, in this. If in anything, that he resists the shameful, moralized manner of speaking, which makes all modern judgments about men and things slimy. Please keep in mind that that quote comes from Frederick Nietzsche, who died in 1900. 
That sounds like that could have been written yesterday. Well, except for the very anachronistic term tartuffery. I read all the time. I feel like I've got a very good working vocabulary. I had to look that up. Tartuff means a hypocritical person that is pretending to have expertise in something. Uh, so, except for that very old term, that could have been written yesterday. Frederick Nietzsche died 121 years ago. That gives me hope that this nonsense, this lunacy, is going to die out at some point. Uh, this has been going on for at least 121 years, and it has not taken over. So even though this very vocal minority has got the loudest voice at this time, society as a whole tends to have enough sense not to fall for that nonsense. And that is as good news as any to end this episode on. Because that is about all I've got for you today, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, again, I will do another chapter of Rules for Radicals in a couple of episodes. I hope you're enjoying these recaps of the book. Um, again, I'm actually enjoying reading this book. I did not expect to. But I am having a lot of fun. I'm learning a lot, particularly about somebody that is just a name. But if you're enjoying this, please leave me a like, a subscribe, and a comment. And as always, you can leave a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com or on the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys, enjoy your weekend. I hope you had a good work week, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Thank you very much. Thank you.